Tenakoto Katoa. Greetings, everyone. Haremai. And welcome to the Tuhura Ahu Ahu virtual field trip. Let's begin our web conference this morning with a karakia. We're here to pour for Fidimaru on the Kitaya. Kirunga, Tatai Kirara, Tatai Ahora. As you no doubt know already, I'm Andrew, the Learns Field Trip Teacher, and it's just gone 9.15am on Thursday, the 1st of August. This is our third and final Field Trip Web Conference for the Field Trip this week, and um, you can follow the written questions for this web conference either on the web conferences page on the Field Trip website, or they'll also appear in the chat pod as well. Our experts this morning uh, to my left, uh, Greg from the Department of Conservation. He's got Sassy, the rodent dog, and we're going to talk more with Greg and Sassy. Hi, guys. Um, about what Sassy does and can do. So that's really interesting. And to my right is Louise Fury from Auckland Museum. Had a fascinating day out and about on Ahu Ahu looking at some archaeological sites, so make sure you check out those videos when you get a chance to go on the website today. Uh, we've also got our ambassadors with us, they're having a good time as well. Eddie the Field, Learns Ambassador, seems to have lost his quack. Oh, no, oh he's got it back again. Oh, he's got it back. <laughs> Fantastic, I'm very happy about that. It's more like a whistle. A Fantasia from Frankton School. Alfred from Mercury Bay Area School and Hippie from Waipipi. <laughs> All having a wonderful time here on Ahu Ahu. Um, welcome to our listing schools and students, the Thompson Twins. Good to see you guys again. And our speaking schools, Mercury Bay Area School and Waipipi School. There will be hopefully an opportunity after this formal part of the web conference to post some unanswered questions that you might have. Uh, but let's get underway. Oh, just, yeah, let's get underway with the questions. Let's, let's get started. So we'll start with Waipipi School with your first question, then we'll move to Mercury Bay Area School and turn about like that. Cool, all right. Question number one from Waipipi School, please. Welcome. And just a reminder, if you can introduce yourself with your first name. And uh, nice and loud, please. Kia ora. I'm Scarlett M. Um, how do you think all the history that has been explored about Ahuhahu will be shared with others in the future? Sorry, I missed that question. Okay. How do you think all the history that has been explored about Ahu Ahu will be shared with others in the future? Well, that's a really good question because that, because that is part of archaeology to try and communicate um, what our findings so that everyone um, knows something about, uh, about our history here in Aotearoa. Um, we do publish papers in academic journals, but that's just, you know, that's tertiary level. Um, so I'm hoping that we will be able to develop some pages on the Auckland Museum website. There are some there already. 
and to develop them further to share our results. Yeah, we've sort of um, kind of only scratched the surface, so to speak, uh, with our field trip this week. You know, it would be wonderful to spend more time here and really getting down to um, some more details with Louise, but um, we've you know, only got a limited time. So what you see today on the videos is just a small representation of the amount of work that's been done here and the findings that have been made. So um, that will be good. We'll look out for that in the future, Louise. Thanks very much. Was it, I think it was Charlotte? Scarlett. Scarlett. Thanks, Scarlett. Good question to get us underway with. And uh, so let's move to Mercury Bay Area School. And uh, for question number one from you, please. Hi, my name is Meg. And my first question is, how long will it be until other native and protected animals come to live safely on Ahu Ahu? I guess that question's for me and Sassy. Um, we, we're actually behind schedule a little bit. We had forecasted to do some translocation work this year. But unfortunately, we had some staffing changes and, and all sorts of other complicating factors. But we're, we're looking at translocating things like weta and spiders and maybe things like saddlebacks. But it'll be a while before there's really any endangered species brought out to um, Ahu Ahu. It's, um, it's got a lot to do with the fact that Ahu Ahu is actually a private, is private land. And there's no guarantees that endangered species will be protected on private land. As you can imagine, at the back of someone's farm, there's quite often kiwi running around in, in unprotected bits of bush. But it's, it's quite hard to justify a translocation to this, this area, this island, because of that. Does that make sense? So a translocation is taking a species from one location yeah. to another. Where there's abundance of, say, North Island robin or something like that. They bring them out to these islands to, to protect them in, you know, in a, a much more isolated and, and protected environment. And New Zealand's quite good at doing that. We've got quite a few yep. uh, predator-free islands where we can take uh, endangered species and have them live safely you know, where, where there aren't predators. Yeah, a good example of that is at the moment the, the Kākāpō breeding program is actually looking for places to put Kākāpō. But because Kākāpō have got a very um, limited range in their, their diet and things, it's quite tricky to find places to put them. So I don't think Ahu Ahu will be a good place for Kākāpō, but that's the sort of thing that these protected and, and pest-free islands are, are really valuable for. Right, thanks, Meg. Uh, so back to Waipipi School, question number two, please. Morena, my name is Sky. Can you tell us how you think archaeology will, will change or improve to help us learn more about New Zealand history? Oh, more than this guy. Um, that's a really good question. Um, I think that techniques will be refined. Um, about 100 years ago, all we had was notepad and paper. I wasn't around 100 years ago, um, but I, I've read about it. Um, that, uh, you know, it's notepad and paper. And now um, we use computers, we use uh, survey equipment where every object is, is located in three dimensions. And I think that it's technology and 
um, greater levels of analysis uh, will enable us to learn more about even the sites that we have excavated in the past. And I said yesterday that I'm the curator of archaeology at Auckland Museum, and I look after all of those materials, including the soil samples um, and the charcoals, because there is, at some point in the future, we'll come up with new questions that those materials can answer. Yeah, it's interesting, because I, I asked Louise yesterday, you know, I mean, how much more is there to learn? And, and that's where that expression is what's in my head. They've only just scratched the surface, so be interesting to um, see what comes about, like you say, over the next, you know, fifty odd years. Um, back to Mercury Bay Area School. Question two, please. Hi, my name's Skylar, and my question is: How else will you ensure that no more pests come on the island, and how will you know if? People don't check their boats for stowaways. Skylar, meet Sassy. This is our number one tool for making sure that no rats get on the island. So Sassy's really good at running around inside boats. And so if we've got um, a big shipment of equipment coming to the island, Sassy gets to look over it. Um, because this is a working farm, quite often there'll be stock barges coming back and forth. And... <laughs> And so Sassy goes out to meet those barges, checks the barge over to make sure there's no rats and mice on board. And then I do a visual inspection and make sure that there's no like big clumps of dirt, mud on the trucks, that sort of thing, so that we can guarantee, well, pretty much guarantee we've got a pretty good success rate on getting rid of weeds and, you know, things like ants and skinks. And you know that you've heard of plague skinks. Well, that's, that's quite a nasty little critter we want to keep off uh, but of course, it gets really busy in summer here, yeah. and the island is open to the public, but, but you're quite busy during that time. Yeah, yeah. I spend a lot of time on my little kayak with Sassy on the bow, and we go visit all the yachts that come and anchor in the harbours here, in Coralie Bay or Home Bay, and we just scoot around up and down the beaches at like Peach Grove Beach and places like that, and just talk to people and make them aware that you know they've got a job to do as well. What a great life, eh? It is. Life's a beach. Great stuff. Thanks, Skylar. Uh, question three now from Waipipi. Kia It's Scarlett J. Can you describe how you think Ahu Ahu will look like in 50 years, including the landscapes, plants and animals? Uh, interesting question. I think you can answer that one, Andrew. <laughs> Me? How do I? Well, I, I probably could, but uh, it sounds better coming from someone. Oh, the expert, you think? Do you want to have a go? I'll have a go. Look, um, because we've got a large proportion of Ahu Ahu is covered in pine trees, I think there's, and, and the owners of the island have decided not to harvest those trees. Normally, pine trees are like you know, a crop. You take them 30 years old, you chop them down, and you replant. Well, they've decided not to harvest that crop. They're going to leave them there. So I'd imagine in 50 years, we're going to have some absolutely enormous pine trees and big light wells will form in amongst the trees because as the trees get bigger and bigger, lots of them will die. And a lot of the understory that we see there now, you might see on the video that we took yesterday, um, will develop into mature canopy trees. So we're going to see a lot more of, of native species poking up through the pine trees. And 
I, I don't think we'll get rid of a lot of the farmland. I think it would be silly to try and um, plant the whole island in native because there's a lot of archaeological sites that really need protecting by light grazing. So putting sheep over those past sites will help preserve those because if the trees grow on them, of course, the roots will deform the land. What do you call it? The, the earthworks. And um, all those buttress and, and trenches will be deformed by by vegetation. So to keep sheep on those, I think is important. Um, I can see a future where there will be, there will be farm here, but also um, a diverse growth in, in native plants and animals as they migrate here. Already we've seen a massive population increase in um, kaka and um, kedudu. Um, Birds like Saddleback don't fly very far, so they don't get here by themselves. But quite likely, there will be translocations of North Island Robin, um, Saddleback, um, yes, yeah, some other species that you can think of, maybe, you know, the, the Mercury Island Tuskweta will probably come here in the short term. Um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to watch, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how it goes. Thank you. Uh, we got scarlets, sort of skies and sky, skies yeah. and scarlets, and getting a bit confusing. Uh, question three for Mercury Bay, please. Hello, my name's Quinn, and how will climate change, how will climate change affect the Great Mercury Island? Who knows? Yeah, good question. <laughs> what do you think, Louise? Um, I, I think that a number of our coastal um, archaeological sites, the Shell Middens and um, other evidence of occupation in the dunes will be affected. Climate change comes with increased storming, um, stormy conditions and um, a lot of storm surge coming up the beaches and um, eroding into the sand dunes where there are archaeological sites. Uh, so we have already investigated two sites that um, were at risk from storm damage and I think that that will increase. Not only that, but very heavy rainfall events and we do get some really heavy rainfall here in the winter and, you know, just big bursts, short bursts. And if the ground is waterlogged, then it starts to slip. Um, and so that can affect archaeological sites as well. Yeah, and of course, you know, you guys are pretty coastal there, so um, I guess anything that's going to affect the island here is going to be similar to the to the mainland at that point. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a really good question, Quinn, and there's a lot of unknowns, but we just need to try and, I guess, do, do our bit to help climate change, uh, you know, personally, and uh, wait and see. You know, let's hope it, let's hope it's not too bad, but um, it's one of those unknowns. So we'll move back to Waipipi's school for question four, please. Morena, it's Donta here. Are there any other goals or plans for Great Mercury Island other than becoming pest-free? Um, I think we're working really hard on a, on a bunch of weed plants here. You'll see in the videos we talked about moth plants. Um, there's also things like uh, woolly nightshade. 
Uh, there's a, a plant that was brought from Australia called Hakia that was brought here for the gold mining, um, heating the ores, and it managed to find its way out to these islands. Um, things like boxthorn, uh, banksia. There's all sorts of plants that are, can be a real problem on, on the protected and very isolated mercury group, you know, green, um, middle island, double island, red mercury, Stanley Island. Those islands are very protected and we spend a lot of time and effort trying to get those pest plants off those other islands. So because Ahu Ahu is so close, it's very easy for those seeds to get transported across the, the very short span of water to you know the likes of middle or, or red. So, yeah, I think we'll be concentrating very hard on, on those pest plants and also um, the Argentine ants, they, they are a real problem. So we're, we're actually in the middle of, well, beginning stages of an eradication program for Argentine ants here. So that, that's going to cost a lot of time and effort and a lot of volunteer effort as well. So if you guys are looking for a, a nice job over the summer holidays when you're a little bit older, Come and talk to us. We'll we'll keep you busy for a week. What about in terms of archaeology, Louise? What what are the future plans for here? Um, well, I think it, I think that the long term goal is to have a management plan, um, which um, guides the farming activities and the conservation efforts on the island. That we know where the archaeological sites are, um, how they should be managed. Um, whether they should have stock on them or not, whether they should have cattle or sheep, uh, whether they should be grazed in really wet conditions. Um, so there's a whole range of things which we can advise the landowners and the, and the farmer, farm manager on um, in how to look after the archaeological sites. So our principle is to... Um, do minimal harm to them and just to try and protect them into the future so that your children um, can come out here and see the terraces on the on the past sites and um, see the diverse range of sites including the gardens and the stone rows in the gardens without them being knocked around by cattle. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty cool to actually be there and you know see, see these uh, these signs in the landscape, stories in the landscape, um, you know, actually see them, you get a better idea and appreciation for it when you can actually visit a place and see it for yourself. Thanks, Donta. And question four from Mercury Bay, please. Hi, my name is Liam. And my question is, has pollution affected Ahu Ahu or do you think it will in the future? Is that me? Probably. <laughs> um, well, I think pollution affects everywhere, and it's a matter of um, the level of pollution. Um, you know, there's places on the island here where they've, they've stored chemicals, and, you know, it's a farm, so you, you've got all sorts of herbicides or, you know, drenches, that sort of stuff. That, that, it, that it has caused a problem. I mean, there's, there's leachates coming out here and there, but it's not, it's not really... A dangerous level of pollution but it's certainly something it needs monitoring and and everyone should be aware that, that these little areas are, are you know they are dangerous but um, I think the big impact that I find is the amount of plastic that washes up on the beaches you know and, and it doesn't matter um, recreational fishermen commercial fishermen 
um, the um, aquaculture industry, um, and just the average Joe blog that loses jandle. You know, I've found nine left-hand jandles, left-foot jandle versus seven right-foot jandles. Why is the proportion of left jandles getting missed, lost on, on boats and in the water? Isn't can, that strange? You can actually look that up online. There's, a, there's apparently reasons for that. <laughs> okay. So anyway, I hope my statistics hold, hold the uh, trend. Yeah well, yeah, well, I mean, and plastic doesn't just come from, you know, people out in the ocean. No. It comes from the land. It gets washed down streams and rivers and yep. it ends, ends up in there. So Absolutely. that's another really cool activity you can get involved in. It's, well, it's a bit like the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff doing beach cleanups. But, um, but even beyond that, once you do your beach cleanup, you can actually start analysing... Uh, the, the rubbish that you find and you can actually identify what is the main type of litter and then you can start to think about where that's come from and think about ways to inform people about um, being more responsible with it or even to the point where you can you know maybe even lobby to stop a company using a certain product in the first place and replacing it with something that's not plastic lots of different ideas you can certainly do more investigation with that to do your little bit. Hey, thanks, Liam. Uh, question five now from Waipipi School. Morena, it's Jack. And my question is, how do you personally view offshore islands and landscapes like Ahu Ahu playing a role in our lives now and in the future? That's a really good question. I think it, we can probably, we'll probably start with you there, uh, Louise. Um, it is a really good question, and it's something that, uh, you know, we have to think really hard about uh, what is the role of these offshore islands. Um, I think that the Department of Conservation have got the right idea in saying that the islands are good places um, away from the mainland where vulnerable um, and endangered species can, um, can survive in a rat-free situation. But also, because it is such a low-impact um, use out here, you know, it's just farming. Um, they don't run bulldozers everywhere. They're not putting houses everywhere and housing developments. Um, that there's a good opportunity to actually protect more uh, diverse range of the archaeological sites here on this island than what you might be able to on the mainland. And that's partly why we were attracted to come and work on this island was because there were the past sites and the midden sites, whereas on the Coromandel um, coastline, um, you know, there's lots of housing developments um, on just about every beach. And um, a lot of the past sites um, on farms have got tracks through them or around them. Um, so this island is a bit different in that sense. And I think that that is a point of distinction which we can emphasise in the future. And then, as I talked about um, developing a management plan to look after these sites, that makes it even more important to make sure that the island is treated as a, like a conservation zone for archaeological sites. Right, so anything to add to that? Well, yeah, I think, I think it's important that we have these offshore arcs for the animals that are, are endangered. Because, you know, eventually we're looking at Predator Free 2050 and have these resources of endangered species on these little islands. 
then they can go back to the mainland where they belong. You know, and in, in 2051, we might be putting all those small spotted kiwis, whatever it is that's on these islands, back on the mainland for, for like everybody to see and, and experience. So that's my hope. Well, it's, it's great hope. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it's going to take a lot of effort. We can all play a part in that. So whatever you can do, whether it's getting rid of weeds, getting rid of pests, planting native trees and that sort of thing, um, we can all play a massive part in helping that goal of predator-free 2050. And uh, Mercury, so that was, I couldn't, I actually forgot your name. Was it Leah? Jack. Jack, sorry, Jack. Jack from Waipapi. I've actually seen you over the course of the last week, or over the last three days. So it's really good to see your um, question and your continued interest in the, the web conferences. Thanks very much. And Mercury Bay Area School, your final question this morning, please. Hi, my name is Francie, and my question is, is there any discussion about conserving the marine environment around Ahuahu as well? Mm. Mm. After we saw a uh, prey boat out there yesterday, yeah. dropping his pots. Yeah, I think um, there's always the possibility, but I, I, I haven't heard any absolute discussion on that subject. Um, of course, we've got the Hahe Marine Reserve just out of Pirianga there. So I think this area is well served for marine reserves, but I also think that we have got nowhere near enough marine reserves in New Zealand. So there's always the potential. And I think it's about um, putting a bit of public pressure and changing the social psyche of the local residents and the fishermen, not just commercial fishermen, because there's a lot of recreational fishing happening, happening here that, you know, it, it's a very valuable recreational resource. And I'd hate to think that we're going to upset a lot of people because someone dictatorially said, no, we're going to no more fishing here. So it's got to be a community led um, exercise. And it's going to take a lot of consultation if, if the decision is to make the Mercury's or the Aldermans or Cuvier um, uh, fishing-free recreation, you know, of marine reserves. Yeah. But it doesn't take a lot of area to have a big impact, though, does it? No, that's true. But, but it's getting to that point. <laughs> getting to making that decision. That's the trick. Yeah. 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 There's a, you know, the, the impact you have on recreational fishing is huge because it's, it's such beautifully sheltered water and bass fishing resources but you know how much fish do we need to take it's really interesting there's a, a couple of uh, books that were written up here um by what's his name previous resident pat mism and i was having a flick through and reading about um some of the fish that were caught you know quite a few years ago and um some big harpooka not far off the shore and, you know, big snapper and things like that. You know, and it sounds like there was just a lot of fish in abundance. And I'm sure that, I'm sure there's not quite that amount now. So some of those old stories can give you an indication of just what, what abundance of species were here. And that's the same with, um, with archaeology, isn't it, um, Louise? Because when you, do your excavations and you find fish, uh, fish bone and, and shellfish, uh, evidence of shellfish and even seabirds, it can give you a really good picture of um, 
the, the biology that's around the area, but was around the area in comparison to what it is now. That's right. And we actually find species of shellfish in archaeological sites, um, uh, including here on this island, which uh, are no longer um, present out there on the rock platforms. And one of them is Solana denticulata. It's a limpet, but it's a really deep shelled limpet. And so look it up if you um, want to have a look. It's called Solana denticulata. And uh, the middens are full of them, but they, uh, they don't exist on this coast anymore. And we've excavated sites with an abundance of crayfish um, and an abundance of scallops in them. Um, but it's very, um, you have to dive for the scallops now um, with, um, with air and, uh, and the crayfish are getting harder and harder to get. And I think everyone all around our coastline has stories, even in the last 10 years, the last 20 years of changes that have uh, occurred to our marine resources. Yeah, well, that was one of the stories was how they were just wading out and feeling around the rocks and grabbing crayfish. Yeah you know, in, in sort of knee-deep water. Amazing to think about that. Right, hey, great job, guys. Waipipi and Mercury Bay Area School. There will be, we've got a little bit of time to answer some questions in a moment uh, from anyone else that might have a burning question they want answered. Um, but, you know, thanks very much to our experts for your fantastic answers and your time this week. It's um, it's been really we can talk the sassy again. So, Louise and Greg, you know, we really appreciate your time. I hope you guys have have you know learned a lot from participating in these web conferences. I've seen some of you on every web conference this week, so that's fantastic. And this web conference is recorded, so you can listen to it again. And I'm sure there'll be people listening to it later that couldn't make it this morning. While you're on the website, have a read of my diary, have a look at the images, check out the videos. So that's all for our formal part of the web conference. Um, the last one for this week. Now you're free to post questions in the chat line. And Barry, I'll, I'll leave it to you to filter through those and ask those questions. Oh, first one from the Thompson Twins is, how did the island get its name? And I presume that's the Murray name and the English name. Please. Um, the name Ahu Ahu uh, means to, to mound up. And uh, it's always difficult to know how these names um, actually originated. But just the, that literal meaning of to mound up is thought to have something to do with the kumara gardens because when you plant the Māori kumara, you make mounds and you put the kumara into the mound. Um, so it's quite possible that it was um, it, it was an island of gardening. Um, that might be what it literally means, or it could have another meaning which has been lost uh, in the past. And Great Mercury was to do with the uh, the, the observation of the, the transit of... No, Mercury. I'm not sure how, because um, I think they looked at the transit of Mercury when it was the transit of, was it Mercury in Fitianga? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay, so Cook, Cook named it, I think. Wow. 
I've actually just started just calling it Ahu Ahu over the last week. Um, I actually quite like the name. It's a nice sounding name. And by the way, if you do need to leave the web conference, that's fine. Um, we will have a roundup at the end when you can all say uh, Kakitiano, but um, if, you need to, if you need to go now, that's absolutely fine. Any more questions there, Barry? Yep. How do you know that you've only scratched the surface in archaeology? This is from Andaria from Monique Taylor's class. <laughs> yes, that is a good question. <laughs> yeah. um, when archaeologists do excavations, uh, we do it very slowly. Um, we use trowels and we use brushes, um, as I'm sure that you have seen some examples on uh, TV. Um, and so it takes quite a long time to um, remove um, the soil from an archaeological site. So we might be in the one place with a team of 20 people and we might only excavate a 10 metre by 10 metre area. Now, we have to be responsible as well. We can't just go out there and excavate the whole island just because we like doing field work, which is fun. Um, but the hard part comes when we take all the material back to the laboratory and we have to write the excavation up and we have to do all the analysis. And, um, and the rule of thumb usually is that a week in the field can be several months of solid work writing up. So we have to be responsible and we have to be ethical. And um, because we're transferring that information, which is contained in the ground onto paper, it's our responsibility to um, be able to write that up and write the story and communicate with other people what was going on there. I don't think that we will ever, ever um, dig up the entire island. Um, and, and I can say that for a certainty. Uh, because we also leave something of every site behind for someone in the future to ask new questions of it. Um, although we retain those materials in the, in the museum and the, the laboratory, um, we have to ethically leave part of that site behind uh, for the future, for, to preserve it in situ. Thanks, Louise. Next one also from Monique Taylor's class from Sophie. What's the biggest pest you've found on the island? Now, the Argentine ant sounds like the, the worst pest. Well, I wonder whether they mean the biggest size pest. Sorry, Barry, actually froze then. We missed the question. Biggest pest you found on the island, and I think the Argentine ant that we talked about yesterday is the worst pest, but have you got like a bigger, physically bigger pest that's a problem? <laughs> I think humans are probably the biggest pest that we get out on this island. Funny how I hear that yeah, response yeah. And, to and, that sort of question. Yeah, I, I, I'm serious about this actually because they, they pose a huge threat. Not only for transporting other animals to the island or other pest animals to the island, it, it, um, they're threatening themselves. And, you know, they want to um, reach into the kaka nest and, and hold a kaka chick or something like that. It, it happens quite a lot and it, it's, quite, it's quite dangerous, you know. So, yeah, I think humans are the biggest threat in themselves. Yeah. Yeah, food for thought. <laughs> So um, there's quite a funny one here from Alison Miskay from Waipipi. 
who is a transplanted Canadian, translocated Canadian, is trying to figure out Greg's oh accent and, and or from where he hails, so he can probably enlighten us. I was born in Calgary in 1961. I came to New Zealand in 1972. I lived in South Auckland uh, until about the mid-80s, and then I moved to the Thames Coast. And that's me. Kia ora. Oh, you're pretty much a local now. Thank yeah. you, Greg. Thank you. So, Alison's class two, have you found any strategies that Murray have used for gardening? So, we've talked about the stones and the ditches. Um, I wonder if there's some other stuff about uh, the seasons or the the wind or the sun. Um, you had a photo in your diary yesterday, and I wonder when I looked at it whether um, whether it was north facing. Was it the Coomera one? Well, the the interesting uh, one from uh, yesterday was about um, the stone rows, but within the within the soil there were other rocks, and so. Louise, they, they, they acted as a bit of a, a warmer for the kumara. Yeah, um, because kumara is, is really a tropical plant, um, the New Zealand summer is, is not long enough to grow those um, tubers to maturity. So you have to put them into the ground um, in September and then try to harvest them in March or April before the cold and the rains come. So um, it is an advantage to have these warmer soils in, um, in early spring, uh, which will encourage the tubers to sprout and come away and maximise that length of growing time. But the other thing that Māori developed was the storage. Um, because they couldn't um, grow them all year round as they could in the, in the tropical areas, they had to develop a means to store those tubers over the winter so they could eat them, but also to um, retain some of the tubers for seed, uh, for the, as, as tubers for the next season's planting. And so they developed this really um, ingenious system of these rectangular pits in the ground that had a roof over them, and they would keep the kumara um, at a steady temperature all through the winter and um, hopefully they wouldn't get any fungus or any diseases in them and then they could access them and take them out for uh, for eating all through the winter. And in those uh, kumara pits they were there was drainage systems so they didn't get water going in? Yes they had um, drainage systems around the outside, they had drainage systems on the inside um, so that water would uh, sort of collect to the outside edges and then maybe a drain through the corner of the pit to, um, to uh, the outside edge of, of a terrace or something like that. The, the big thing was to try and keep the rats out of them and so they probably used um, tree fern uh, fibre or mingi-mingi or something like that to um, impede that access um, uh, by the kiori uh, in, into the uh, kumara pits to eat all of the kumara. I mean, if you just stop and think about it for a while, like you might go on a holiday somewhere overseas and you suddenly, it's, it's, oh, it's hotter or it's colder, or the people speak a different language and there might be some different looking buildings and cars. When early, when Polynesians arrived here, 
like they they were the first people here it was you know you, they had to develop everything themselves they had to they had to think about how to stay warmer because it wasn't as warm you know their food didn't grow the same they were different animals and you know it, it just it must be it was a huge huge undertaking and if you really think about it it's like they were a, very clever and and to adapt to this environment and create new ways of the likes of gardening and preserving that food it's a, it's a, you know when you really start to think about it it's quite amazing but um i, th I think that you can also transfer that um those thoughts to when early europeans arrived here that they arrived in a very strange land as well. They'd never seen the big bush, like um, huge trees in, in New Zealand. And a lot of the early Europeans relied quite heavily on Māori to, uh, to actually acclimatise them and to teach them um, how to live in this land. Um, you know, they, they couldn't go to Bunnings and buy planks to, um, to build a house from. And so they often relied on um, on Māori to uh, to build them forays to live in first, while they thought about making themselves uh, um, themselves a house that that they were more familiar with. So a lot of the things that I've been talking about in archaeology and um, uh, adaptation of uh, human behaviour um, applies not just to Māori; it applies to every culture throughout the world. And, uh, and applies to, to Europeans when they first arrived here. Yeah, well, I, I guess that was even further away. I mean, you know, they, were, they came from the other side of the world. At, mm. least, at least Aotearoa was somewhat similar to the Pacific where, um, where Māori, you know, originated from. So, yeah, it would have been a huge culture shock. Cool. One more. Yeah, well, um, one more. time for one more. So this... Uh, what types of dogs, what breeds of dogs do you use to sniff the boats? So you've got two, I think. Yeah. Um, well, the terriers. So terriers have been bred for hundreds of years to hunt and, and catch small furry animals. So that's exactly what a rat is, is a small furry animal. And yeah, she's not too interested in toys. But if it was alive, she'd be given it a bite, or at least trying to. So that that's what it's all about with these little guys. They, they you know, we why would you go against generations of breeding to find an, a different sort of dog? You wouldn't use a sheep dog because they're used, you know, they've been bred for herding sheep for hundreds of years. So these little terriers, there's a, the perfect tool for the job. And that's why we use terriers. And it doesn't really matter. Fox terrier, Jack Russell, Scottish terrier, Jack Russell crossbreeds. You know, there's all sorts of them, border terriers, you name it. There's lots and lots of different terriers. And they're just about the whole lot are engaged in pest control or pest detection work. Yeah, a lot of the um, people I know who have had fox terriers, they'd like to burrow. Yeah, and that's where the word terrier comes from, is from terra firma, which means the, the oh, earth. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so they dig holes to chase the little vermin or whatever. Yeah. Hey, guys, it's been wonderful having you on the web conferences this week. And... Um, we look forward to you joining us on another field trip soon. Barry will now unmute you all and you can all say... Just about finished, you may. Bye, you're all bye. unmuted. Bye. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Great, great fun, great learning.